Alex Barnard is an assistant professor of sociology from New York University. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, an MPhil in international development from the University of Oxford, and a Bachelor of Arts in sociology from Princeton University. His areas of interest include medical sociology and mental health, comparative cultural sociology, social policy and social theory. On this episode, we discuss his work around mental health, incarceration and homelessness. So hi Alex and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today and I'm very excited to know about you and the kind of work that you've been doing. Uh, so to get us started, I'd just like to know a little bit about yourself, about your academic background and um, your interest in the areas that you've been looking at uh, so far specifically. Sure. So uh, I'm from Flagstaff, Arizona. So it's a relatively small city in the southwest of the United States, um, but haven't lived there for a long time. I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and now I'm an assistant professor at NYU. I've been here for the last two years. Uh, so my intellectual journey into sociology, I, I went to do my bachelor's. I had never heard of sociology. I had really no sense of what it was. Um, but stumbled into a class on poverty and inequality in America. Uh, and I think it really blew my mind because I grew up in kind of this, you know, sort of moderate left-leaning household that had a particular vision of how to solve poverty in the U.S. And this class really both challenged kind of the right-wing narrative that, you know, people in poverty are there as a result of a culture or a lack of work ethic, um, but also sort of the, you know, center-left narrative that, you know, with a few government programs, uh, you know, you can you can eliminate poverty in the U.S. without really, you know, challenging racism or capitalism or sort of the broader social structures. So that class had a big impact on me. My first independent research project was on something very different from what I'm doing now. So it was actually on uh, freegans, uh, who are people who dumpster dive for food uh, outside of supermarkets uh, as an act of political protest. So it was a study, an ethnographic study of how people. Uh, sort of use the waste of our system of our sort of consumer capitalist society, use that waste to critique, critique it. So my first book was actually about freegans. And after that, I, you know, did a pretty significant pivot. Uh, and now I study uh, how societies respond to people living with severe mental illness uh, in a comparative, uh, from a comparative framework. So my dissertation looked at kind of the, the different trajectories of people with severe or persisting mental illness in France and the US and why in an era where the treatments are basically really similar, it's kind of the same medications in two countries, that you know the illnesses are obviously the same, the diagnoses are the same, the training of psychiatrists is pretty similar, and yet people have very, very different trajectories uh, in these two countries, that somebody with the same illness receiving the same treatment is going to wind up uh, you know, spending a lot of time in a hospital in France and then maybe going into the community and being kind of under the watchful eye of a very paternalistic health system. And in the U.S., that same person might be bouncing between jails, prisons, short-term hospitalizations, homeless shelters, nursing homes. Uh, so trying to understand why those, those differences persist uh, in an era of kind of global psychiatry. For sure, right? And I think it's interesting, I think, you know, especially when you look at two different sides of research, because it also shows you how one person's condition, you know, so to speak, could be the same, but it could be looked at very differently in two like different societies, right? So I think along those lines, I'd like to know a little bit about, you know, the frameworks as to how mental illness is really understood and addressed in both the USA and in France. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the sociological insights that kind of blew my mind is that 
you know, it's not just that these societies label or diagnose mental illness differently. It's that different social frameworks, different societies actually produce kind of different kinds of mentally ill people. That sort of what it means to be somebody with schizophrenia is just going to be profoundly different in France and the U.S. And even that's going to be even more profoundly different from, you know, countries uh, that have very different social structures, very different, different cultures. So like I said, you know, there's sort of this essentially the, the system in France, which is a system where uh, hospitals close very slowly. So in most, you know, developed Western countries, there was a kind of a peak of psychiatric hospitalization in the 1950s and 1960s, and that started to come down and has pretty much continuously gone down until today. Uh, but in France, that process happened very, very slowly. Um, it has a psychiatry profession that kind of remained anchored in hospitals uh, and that continues to have more influence of psychoanalysis, Freud, so it's kind of a different understanding of mental illness, not just as something that's biological, but something that's related to a person's history um, and sort of their inner life and unconscious. Uh, and all of that has created a system, like I said earlier, that is, that is much more paternalistic and that produces people who are very, very dependent on the healthcare system. And so part of my research was looking at attempts to kind of dislodge this. So there are various attempts to make people with mental illness in France more autonomous, make them more independent from the healthcare system. But a lot of what my work kind of shows is how sticky and difficult to change uh, these kind of paradigms for how to treat mental illness are, partly because they've created people kind of in their own image. So, you know, France has created a set, you know, a population of people uh, with mental illness who are very dependent on the healthcare system and are really understood through, you know, range of different actors uh, throughout the social system are really understood as above all sick people and not some other kind of person. Uh, so, so that sort of is, you know, that part of my work is about why those differences sort of reproduce themselves. In the U.S., there was a much more rapid and dramatic closure of hospitals. We have a much less developed healthcare system. And so that identification of people with mental illness as actually sick people uh, is, is, is in some ways much weaker. So even though we have a very strong biological model of mental illness, that these are brain diseases that are rooted in genetics, the way our system actually treats them is it doesn't really necessarily treat them as sick people. Um, you know, somebody with severe mental illness they're going to be having their needs met, you know, more or less, potentially through, you know, other kinds of social services or through the criminal justice system that sees them not as sick people, but as, you know, as criminals or as disabled people or sort of all other different, all sorts of other kind of labels um, that would be used less in France. Right. And, you know, I think um, this actually reminds me of a book that I had read, I think, maybe two or three months ago called Lost Connections. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I think it speaks a lot about how mental illness for so long has been seen as a medical problem, but there are a lot of social aspects to it. Right. And I think along those lines, we can't really dismiss either the biological side or the social side. I feel like they both sort of like work hand in hand. We just like know a little bit as to, you know, like how the two factors work in tandem, you know, and, and I think especially looking at like your experience and like training, you know, in, in like sociology itself, I'd like to know a little bit as to um, like what you think about it. Yeah, so I'm a qualitative researcher. I do interviews and I do observations and I also look at historical data, media and archives. So I'm not a quantitative researcher and so, uh, you know, a lot of folks doing sociology and mental health, they're looking at the social determinants of health. So they're looking at how kind of our favorite variables as sociologists, race, class, gender, you know, immigration status, 
uh, employment status, you know, kind of all of these sort of social variables impact people's people's mental health. And, you know, we, we know that those variables are, are very, very powerful. They don't explain everything. And that's why we think, you know, there probably is some role for, for genetics. There's some role for what seems to be kind of chance. But, you know, we know that almost all mental illnesses cluster disproportionately among people who are dealing with other kinds of, of disadvantage. I think, you know, for me, what's been kind of, that's in some ways very predictable, even if it's, it, it's very, very important to document and to keep documenting and to keep showing because it, it sort of pushes our thinking about mental health interventions towards intervening on those social factors and not just treating medical conditions. And I think that Lost Connections book is a little bit, uh, you know, that makes that, that argument that if we want to think about how to treat depression, we should think about how to treat disconnection in society. We should think about how to treat poverty. We should think about how to treat racism. We shouldn't just be thinking about how to treat symptoms. Um, but I think that, you know, even beyond those sort of social determinants, uh, I think that we generally even, you know, within sociology, but society more broadly, don't think nearly enough about how culture and the way we frame illness actually shapes the way people experience it and shapes its prevalence. Uh, so I was really affected by reading a book by Ethan Waters called Crazy Like Us. Uh, that's about how sort of American ideas, I mean, kind of Western ideas, but particularly American ideas about what mental illness is, uh, have been pushed on other places in the world uh, in some ways, in ways that are, that are not super beneficial. So one chapter that really I found very, very interesting uh, was a chapter on the response to the tsunami in Sri Lanka, which I believe was in, in 2004, this enormous tsunami that killed many, many people. And in response, there was a very well-intentioned idea among some uh, mental health workers in the U.S. that, well, we should go to these places and give people counseling because they must have a bunch of trauma. So these counselors went and some of these counselors, you know, they didn't speak the local language. They had no familiarity with the local culture. But there's this idea that, well, these illnesses are the same everywhere, right? So they went and they started looking for trauma and they started telling people, you must be so traumatized. Are you having nightmares? You know, all of these sort of PTSD symptoms that we associate from here. Um, and, and one thing that we see is actually when you start telling people that they should have all of these symptoms, that actually becomes a model that the person starts to potentially produce as a way of channeling their distress. So in some ways, telling people they're traumatized in this way actually shapes their experience and how they were coping with, with the, the tsunami in ways that may not have been beneficial to them. And then the other element was that, you know, a lot of the advice that was given uh, the sort of counseling, the treatment advice that was given was just the exact opposite of what made sense within that culture. So, you know, the kind of narrative in the U.S. is, oh, you're, you have a mental health problem. You should take a step back. You know, you should sort of withdraw a little bit from your obligations to other people uh, and focus on yourself. Um, and in cultures that are a little bit more community oriented, withdrawing and disconnecting from people, that's like the definition of being mentally ill. So you're, you're sort of telling people, you know, do the thing that will make you worse off and make people see you as sort of not functioning. Um, and, and there's all sorts of interesting examples of this. You know, one of the most striking findings is that by some measures, uh, people with schizophrenia do better in, in countries that are, you know, kind of quote unquote, less developed and have less, you know, sort of modern healthcare systems. So there was a big, uh, there was a big study that sort of produced what's called, you know, the World Health Organization schizophrenia paradox. And I believe uh, some of the study sites were in, were in India and maybe Nigeria. And then 
I think it was the US and, and some other European countries. But by some measures, uh, you know, the US actually did the worst among all of these countries in terms of what happens to people with schizophrenia. And there's all sorts of interesting theories about why that is the case. Is it that people are less stigmatized in other countries? Well, stigma, it's not clear. Stigma is pretty high around the world. But maybe it's that these other countries, you know, have a better way of incorporating people with mental illness just into community life. Maybe there's less of a kind of extreme reaction that when, when you know, we learn somebody has schizophrenia in the U.S., it's like everyone like, oh, my God, that's like a death sentence. We have to, you know, quickly intervene to the maximum. And that, that actually pushes somebody out of society. It others them. It, it turns them into something abnormal and that that may actually produce negative results. So those kind of things, those, those kind of examples are why I find looking at other countries to be such a fascinating uh, way of, of challenging what we take for granted. And, and why I think, you know, sort of this, this international sociology, uh, qualitative sociology that looks beyond just these kind of standard social determinants of health um, can be really interesting. In my own case, I actually did my research in France first, and I came back to the US. And I think, because I had been somewhere else for a year and a half, I came back to the US and all of a sudden I thought, all of this is super weird. Like none of this makes sense. Whereas I think if I had done that right away, uh, I would have thought, oh yeah, it's normal that people stay three days in the hospital and then are kicked to the curb. Or it's normal that you know psychiatrists only spend 15 minutes with people just to write a medication prescription. And actually that's pretty specific to our system in some ways. Absolutely right. And you know, I think what's also, I think, very interesting about mental illness as a concept is that, you know, we are all able to understand it as an illness, right? Just like the flu or, you know, a cold in that sense. But it's not as straightforward because if you had like a physical ailment, so to speak, you can, you know, like go to a doctor, get diagnosed. And I think there's a much more objective sort of understanding as to how to treat it. But with mental illness, I think, you know, it's, it's not the case. So I think I just like to know a little bit about uh, like the challenges in general that a lot of like these patients sort of face in seeking appropriate care and how this has been a barrier to them in, in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think this narrative that sort of mental illness is an illness like any other and, you know, people take antidepressants and it's just like taking, you know, insulin for diabetes. It's a thing you just need and there's no shame in that. I think that's such an important narrative and it's it's a really valuable narrative and that if it if it sort of keeps people from blaming themselves and keeps society from blaming people dealing with these conditions we call mental illness, uh, you know, realizing that it's kind of not their fault. So I think that narrative is really valuable. I think on some sort of intellectual level, it's also just completely wrong <laughs> uh, in the sense that, you know, mental illnesses pose challenges and complexities for society that are different from that posed by a condition like like diabetes or heart disease. And the one that has sort of drawn the most interest from me that I've been the most focused on is this question of involuntary treatment. So, you know, throughout most of our medical system, in theory, although not, a, you know, not always in practice, you know, people have to consent to their treatment. And there are exceptions if you're, you know, if you're passed out, uh, you know, it's possible you would be treated on an emergency basis, or if you're um, you know, dealing with some delirium or severe dementia, but in most cases, people have to consent to their treatment. You know, for mental health, every every country in the world has, as far as I know, has some law that allows for people to be involuntarily treated or involuntarily hospitalized. Um, and different societies have really different bases for that. So traditionally, 
the sort of legal basis for that was that it's in the person's best best interest. They need treatment. They don't. They realize they don't realize they need treatment. Uh, so we're going to force them to be be hospitalized. Uh, increasingly, more countries have moved towards a narrower model where it's just if somebody is a danger to themselves or others or or gravely disabled, so like very close to dying from neglect. Uh, only under those circumstances will we force somebody into treatment. But I think that that issue of, of forced treatment is really what sets uh, our social response to mental illness apart from kind of anywhere else in the in the in the medical system. And, and there's a lot of debates about why is that? So some you know advocates for involuntary treatment would say, well, one of the features of conditions like schizophrenia is that sometimes you believe you don't have schizophrenia. That's actually one of the symptoms is we talk about it as a lack of insight or sometimes the word used for it is anosognosia. So that's one justification where, you know, we know that this is a symptom of these illnesses. So all we can do is, is treat people involuntarily and they'll be glad that we did it in the end because they'll realize with treatment that actually I was sick. So I'm glad you treated me. Uh, there are other people who would say, no, that this is just a human rights violation and it's based on stigmatization of mental illness and that, you know, mentally ill people, people living with what we call mental illness should be given the same right to refuse treatment as anyone else. Uh, and these are just really intense debates that are, do seem to be more divisive for mental illness than for other conditions, partly related to the fact that, you know, the treatment we have, medications, it works for some people, it doesn't work for other people, it can have very hard, bad side effects. You know, one of the, pro, you know, one of the questions is, is it, is it really that people are refusing treatment because it's a symptom of their illness or is it what we're offering them is not very good uh, and doesn't meet their needs? So you know, I find those debates to be really fascinating and they're very, very live, very controversial debates in the United States right now. And I've been following that with some of my work. Yeah, right. And mental illness always has the stigma that other like illnesses do not, right? And I think in terms of that, like there are actually very real world consequences, right? Like I think a lot of your work has also looked into the issues of homelessness and incarceration, yeah. which of course, like other illnesses are not, you know, as strongly associated with. So I just like to know a little bit as to like your findings over there um, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, really central to the debate around mental illness in the US uh, is this idea that the failures of our mental health system have led to homelessness and mass incarceration. I think we have to be really careful about this because, uh, you know, homelessness has a lot of causes. It's related to the lack of a real welfare state in the US. It's related to the gutting of public housing. Uh, you know, it really is something that starts to become very visible in the 1980s, which is, you know, actually sometime after we had started closing hospitals. Um, you know, sometimes the statistics about the proportion of homeless people who have, are living with mental illness uh, are a little bit exaggerated, or they mix together people who, you know, really had a mental illness and that led to them being homeless versus people who, you know, as a response to the very depressing conditions of homelessness have developed some kind of uh, condition or, or substance use disorder. So, uh, and, and kind of the same point could be made about mass incarceration that, you know, mass incarceration is, uh, a, was a policy choice that was made in the United States. It was based on a particular, particularly flawed theory, I think, of how to prevent crime. It was also based on a whole lot of, of racism. Uh, and yes, there are a lot of people with severe mental illness in prison, um, but it's partly just because a lot of the people in prison are, you know, 
people who come from various sorts of social disadvantage, and those are the same groups that have a lot of mental illness. So the, the relationship isn't always direct. Uh, and sometimes I, I think that we blame our mental health system for failings that are really much broader in society, and particularly the U.S.'s failure to build a real welfare state and its failure to address its, its history of racism. Um, so those you know, those kind of relationships between mental illness, homelessness, and, and mass incarceration can be overstated, but there clearly is, is some, right? Uh, that, you know, we do, you know, we do think that people with severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia are disproportionately likely to be homeless and disproportionately likely to be facing mass incarceration. Uh, and right now, one of the debates that I'm following, which is really present in California, which is not surprising because California is, you know, kind of the pinnacle of mass incarceration, tragically, and was also, is also home to a quarter of the U.S.'s unsheltered homeless. Um, you know, that debate in California right now is a question of, in order to prevent people from being homeless and to prevent them from being incarcerated, should we force people into mental health treatment? Uh, and that's unsurprisingly a really controversial debate. Some people say, no, if you offered people good services, they would accept them and you wouldn't need to talk about forced treatment. And other people, uh, again, evoke this idea that no, people don't realize they need treatment. That's why they you know, refuse treatment and they wind up getting incarcerated and homeless. Uh, and therefore they would be better off if we, if we force them. Those issues would be very different uh, in another country. So in France, you know, when I say a lot of, you know, there's a lot of linkage with homelessness and, and, and incarceration and French psychiatrists I would talk to would say, oh yeah, it's terrible here too. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people who are homeless, a lot of people who are incarcerated. And it's true, it's very tragic in France, but the numbers are just so, so, so much lower that, you know, in Paris, there's maybe 5,000 homeless people last time I checked. In Los Angeles, it's, you know, 80,000. Uh, so other societies have, have, have avoided the scale of this catastrophe in the US. And again, it's not necessarily because their mental health systems are amazing, but because they have, you know, public housing and basic welfare supports, a dignified income for people who are disabled or more dignified income. Uh, and they, you know, incarcerate a fifth as many people as the US relative to the population. For sure, right. And I think um, looking at the, at the debate, and I mean, I would like to believe that people on both sides of the, of the debate have good intentions, right? I mean, you know, everybody wants everybody to be happy and healthy and on, on both like a mental as well as, as like a physical level as well. But as we often see that, you know, a lot of laws and policies just don't materialize in practice. So I think along those lines, you like know a little bit about the research you've been doing of like conservatorships, especially in California and like the extent to which they've helped. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so conservatorship went from being a very, very, very obscure topic to a less obscure one. Uh, I don't know if your your listeners, depending on where you are in the world, you, well, maybe everywhere in the world knows about Britney Spears, or at least heard about Britney Spears. Uh, Britney Spears is under conservatorship since 2008. Conservatorship is a legal tool that is used for people, uh, you know, identified as having usually either a severe mental illness, a developmental disability, uh, or some cognitive issue like dementia. And conservatorship is a, you know, is a, is a, a, a legal tool where a court grants some third party, it could be a family member, it could be a public official, it could be a private paid private conservator, uh, and grants that third party a lot of powers over the person. So it could be a power to manage their money, it could be a power to consent to treatment on their behalf, and it could be a consent to deter, it could give that person 
the control of where a conservatee lives. So uh, a conservator could decide, for example, that their conservatee needs to live in a locked institution. Uh, in Britney Spears's case, she's been on this conservatorship since 2008. So her, her father in particular has controlled her vast fortune of $60 million and has been deciding when she can have a cell phone, telling her, you know, she, forcing her to use birth control. So all sorts of incredible intrusions uh, on her life. And recently that's sort of come to light and there's been a free Britney Spears movement and she, her voice has sort of come out a little bit more. She's testified at how, about how abusive she's found this, uh, this arrangement. Um, so uh, that's, you know, put conservatorship a little bit on the, on the public radar, but actually before this in recent years, uh, people have actually been talking about expanding conservatorship in order to conserve more people who are particularly homeless and using substances. Um, so I've been talking a lot about these debates about involuntary treatment, uh, and, and this is sort of one example of this. Should we expand conservatorships or should we contract conservatorships? Uh, and for me, as a, as a researcher, what's frustrating is that this has been largely a, a pretty fact-free debate, which is to say, you know, people on both sides of expanding or contracting conservatorship are, you know, very confident in their positions. So, uh, you know, people in favor of conservatorships believe that, you know, conservatorships are a way to save lives of people who are dying on the street. People opposed to conservatorship are going to tell you that this is one of the greatest deprivations of civil liberties aside from uh, the death penalty. Uh, and that, uh, you know, people like Britney Spears, there are lots of people like Britney Spears who are, would be fine. You know, they should be allowed to make decisions. Maybe they wouldn't be the best decisions, but they should be allowed to make decisions for themselves. And conservatorships are just a form of, are just harmful and producing all sorts of, of trauma. Uh, but actually, you know, we lack really basic information to sort of adjudicate these claims. We don't know how many people are conserved in California. We don't know their characteristics. You know, are there a lot of Britney Spearses or is it a lot of, you know, how many of those people were homeless? What are their outcomes? How long do people stay on conservatorship? Uh, we don't have answers to any of that. Uh, my research isn't, you know, kind of a quantitative study of the impacts of conservatorship, but it is trying to understand a little bit better, you know, where conservatives actually are and how they get there and what kind of services they're receiving and what winds up happening to them. And it's it's an attempt to contribute uh, a little bit more data to that debate, which is which is ongoing and and very uh, very heated right now. Right, you know, I think like to the Britney Spears example, I think a central sort of question to the debate really sort of boils down to the question of human rights, right? As in, you know, if each and every like person on this planet deserves and of course like should be granted rights, right? Like as, as a human being, like, and there are like certain like circumstances nevertheless where it has to be restricted or like curtailed for some reason. So I think along those lines, I just like know, like it's a very broad sort of question, which could be, you know, like endlessly sort of spoken about and debated, but I'd still like to know as to how exactly one can sort of strike that sweet balance where we grant like basic human rights to a lot of like these people where at the same time, we understand that there are like certain limitations where we may not have give them, you know, a lot of, of like the rights um, that they should otherwise have as mentally like well people in society. Yeah, I mean, I think and and the, the concept of rights itself is so tricky in the US when we talk about rights, we're really thinking of kind of civil liberties. So 
you know, there's the right to vote, you know, there's the right to own a, own a gun. As far as I know, most conservatives in the U.S. Uh, re retain the right to vote, but at least in California, you lose your right to possess a, a firearm, which is very important to some Americans. Um, but, you know, generally we think of, of rights in terms of civil liberties, which is in some ways just a right to be told, a right to kind of do what you want, not be told what to do, and to have you know, legal protections against people who are trying to force you to do something. And so it's due process. You know, for conservatorship, you get to go in front of a judge, you have a public defender who's going to represent you. There's a kind of a presumption of innocence that they have to show that you meet this legal standard for conservatorship. So that's often, I think that's kind of the dominant understanding of rights in the US. Uh, I think in a place like France and many other countries, you have a concept of social rights, which is not just that people have a right to not be told what to do. They also have a right to help. They have a right to housing. They have a right to dignified income. Uh, and it, as soon as you start thinking about social rights, then it, it gets trickier, right? So, you know, the human rights of somebody who's homeless, are we going to prioritize their civil rights or are we going to prioritize their social rights? Um, and I think in the US, we've really prioritized civil rights to the detriment sometimes of those other, those other rights. So, you know, I think that, you know, the reality is that the system in the US, the degree to which we have neglected people through lacking, you know, through denying people access to healthcare, uh, through, again, through mass incarceration, through a lack of housing, through, uh, you know, a system that is not providing education, you know, thorough education to some groups, you know, people being subjected to racism, that has produced a group of people uh, that do have really serious, potentially very serious mental illness, and that are very, you know, disconnected from the system that don't want treatment. And now we're saying, well, we need to force those people into having the things that we should have given them a long time ago, right? Like, these people are unhoused, we should force them into housing. Like, well, why didn't we offer them housing 20 years ago, maybe before their, you know, before their illness had developed further. So, you know, I think that with a really robust approach to social rights, uh, we wouldn't have to think about civil rights as much because no one would even think of, you know, putting somebody on a conservatorship because, you know, they would be doing a lot better because we had, you know, met their needs earlier on. I think that now we are in this kind of dilemma where there are people who are doing really badly. They really are dying on the streets. Um, and, you know, we should have intervened earlier, but now this is the choice we're faced with. And I think, uh, you know, unfortunately in California, there is at least some argument for, uh, you know, at least temporarily, uh, you know, institutionalizing or putting some more people under conservatorship uh, really as kind of a life-saving intervention, but the reality is it's it's really unfair to those people because we failed them, our society failed them, and now we're going to force them uh, into, you know, we're going to force them into doing something uh, in order to meet their needs that, you know, we should have been meeting those needs, you know, essentially years or decades ago. For sure, like it sort of reminds me of a lot of the things that I have partially covered in, in some of my lectures where we've sort of looked at, um, you know, I think if you draw parallels like India, right, as as a society, I think we are deeply stratified, you know, along lines of yeah. caste, class, uh, like gender and, and a lot of other, you know, like areas in that sense. And I think a lot of the times whenever we speak about mental illness and mental health, it's so hotly debated because it's only the very upper strata of society that often gets to avail of, you know, of like such services and whereas people who have been 
unlike marginalized for so long, like barely know about its existence. So I think along those lines, I just like, you know, if over the course of your research, you have found whether there have been certain like class differences or like what exactly, like the factors have been in, in accessing mental health care in that sense. Yeah, I mean, again, the sort of destigmatizing narrative sometimes is that, you know, mental illness can affect everyone, you know, it doesn't discriminate. And one thing I tell my students is that, you know, when it comes to medical sociology, everything discriminates, right? Like everything has unequal impacts. And, and we saw this with COVID too, at the beginning of COVID, you know, you heard this, like the virus can strike anywhere, like we're all in this together. And we've seen so quickly, you know, it's true that anyone could get sick, but who's dying? You know, the rates of, of COVID deaths in the U.S. for, for Latinos are three times as high uh, as those for, for non-Hispanic whites. Uh, and I think kind of any country you look at, whoever is on the bottom of social hierarchies, they're going to be unequally impacted by something like COVID and also unequally impacted by mental illness. In terms of access to care, there's been really interesting studies. There was an audit study uh, where essentially somebody, a researcher called a ton of therapists in New York City with different scripts. And some of those scripts had sort of a, a quote unquote middle class way of talking. And some of them had a more working class way of talking. You know, in some cases it was a man, some cases a woman, in some cases they tried to signal that it was a white person and in other cases they signaled that it was a black person. Uh, and there were really clearly differences, you know, that the middle-class people got a lot more callbacks, um, some ways, you know, how you might expect. But I think, you know, one of the weird paradoxes in the U.S. is that generally the less severe your condition is, the more health, the more mental health services you might wind up consuming. So myself as a, you know, relatively affluent professor, if I want to go see a therapist every week, my private insurance will pay for that. And I can see a psychiatrist every month. You know, I can consume a lot of mental health services. If you're on public insurance, you know, you might get like close to zero therapy appointments and you see a psychiatrist every three months for a quick prescription who's gonna, you know, just give you medication and not talk to you. So there is this kind of crazy paradox in terms of where our resources are actually going within the mental health system. Uh, that, that I think is, is also very distressing, but I think that sort of also poses a lot of questions. You know, when I talk to my students, you know, student mental health is a huge issue right now, and at least the places I've worked in the U.S. Students are talking a lot about mental health in a way that, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate 15 years ago, uh, we were not talking about mental health. Uh, and there are more and more students who are, are, are coming and they're, they're being open about struggles with depression and anxiety and how, uh, you know, how that's affecting their schoolwork. Um, I think we talked earlier about how kind of our culture provides models of illness and shapes people's experience. I think the fact that we're talking about uh, anxiety and depression more means that people are reinterpreting experiences that before would have been uh, just considered stress or depression. Those are being reinterpreted in some ways through these frameworks of anxiety and depression. And I think that's helping a lot of people access services um, which I think for a lot of people is really, really helpful, but it does raise this question of where are resources going, right? So can we expand therapy for, you know, a broad swath of the population when, you know, a huge proportion of people living with schizophrenia are not accessing any services at all? And how do we set priorities around that? I think it's just really tricky.
yeah definitely and i you know and i think the more we start talking about it and the way we sort of understand like mental illness as a concept of course can really help us you know wrap our heads around how we address it as well right which is i think you know like something that we've been um, you know like speaking about and i think i just sort of like to jump back a little bit and look at like mm-hmm. the legal aspect a little bit a bit of your work has also looked at the role of attorneys and like public defenders and i yeah. just like to know about like their views on providing legal protection um in in, in like this area as well Yeah, so in in the US the, the story here is that kind of in the 60s and 70s there were these exposés of how easily people were being forced into psychiatric hospitals for potentially very long periods of time. So there's a big famous study in California that found that the average hearing was 4.7 minutes and after this 4.7 minute hearing people could be incarcerated in a state hospital for the rest of their lives. Uh and so the you know proposal was well we need to really boost people's due process protections you know we need to make sure that they that nothing is indefinite right that people have a right to see a judge regularly that they're represented by an attorney uh, that they're informed of their rights to contest their hospitalization all sorts of things like that uh, initially you know and and some amount of social scientists sort of went into these new hearings and sort of asked you know what impact did this actually have uh and the initial answer was very little that judges and public defenders largely agreed with psychiatrists that their clients were crazy and crazy people belong in a hospital uh and so the first studies we have you know show that lawyers were just really really ineffective um in my own work i've i've talked to a lot of public defenders and some judges who are involved in these conservatorship cases in california and you know the legal protections against conservatorship are very strong so uh you have you know it has to be shown that a person is gravely disabled which means they can't meet their basic needs for food clothing and shelter as a result of a mental illness that has to be shown beyond a reasonable doubt so that's the same standard that you would use in a criminal trial uh you know people do have a right to be represented they have a right to contest that conservatorship every 6 months um and the state has to keep proving it every year you know it's not just sort of a default so there are these very robust it has to be if the person asks for a jury trial the jury has to be unanimous uh so there are these very robust protections that again you know a lot of the people who are being considered for conservatorship are people who are doing really badly like there are people who have been hospitalized many times uh who and are sort of not making it for various reasons in the community And so I think for the attorneys I talked to there's a real tension between a commitment to I'm going to do what my client wants that's what lawyers do if my client wants out I'm going to get this person out I'm going to use every tool at my disposal I'm going to object to everything the psychiatrist says I'm going to try and keep the medical record out of evidence you know I'm going to use all these legal tools that you would use for a criminal defendant right like that's the way this is an adversarial kind of common law system works you know even if the person is guilty you know the the lawyer is supposed to defend that person to the maximum and you know the other side's going to fight as hard as they can and justice is going to come out of it that's kind of one pull that lawyers face i think the other pull is this idea of well these people really need help and conservatorship is the way that they're going to get help and you know sometimes it's not clear what somebody wants so maybe i'll consent to the conservatorship on their behalf um you know so there there is this this tension that they face but at least most of the lawyers i talk to you know i think they they have a pretty strong commitment to you know maximizing the liberty of of most of their 
their client, you know, in most cases, you know, sort of getting their clients out if that's what their client wants. Uh, I think a bigger paradox is that at least some public defenders believe if this person isn't hospitalized, they're going to go commit a crime and then they're going to be incarcerated. And that's even worse, you know, by some, by some, you know, measures. And so that's a real dilemma for a public defender because sometimes, you know, in their view, it's better to force that person into treatment than to have that person wind up in a prison. And so that's a different kind of moral dilemma that some of them are dealing with. For sure, right? And I mean, you know, there are no easy answers, I feel. Um, you know, it's, it's complicated and, and, and both sides have their, you know, like pros and cons in, in that sense. And yeah, you know, I think um, a final sort of thing I'd like to sort of look at is that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, um, in like the social sciences, at least it's so different from the natural sciences because we are studying human beings, right? And we come with our own biases and preconceptions. So I think it like, um, I'd like to know a little bit as to whether you have ever felt that your experiences or background or identity has ever influenced the course of your research, either in terms of your access to, to like resources or the way you've shaped the narrative or, or anything that... Um, you may have like found on, on this end. Absolutely so much every step of the way, right? Um, you know, even starting with the fact that I've had, you know, the universities I've had access to have been, you know, better resourced universities, which have given me more resources for conducting my research. Um, you know, so there's this kind of social class element there. Uh, there's a racial element for sure. So in, uh, and, and sort of a nationality element. So when I was in France doing my research, um, you know, interestingly, because I was a foreigner, uh, people gave me access to a lot of places that they might not have given a French person because it's like, oh, this guy's from somewhere else. So we're going to let him observe this setting. He doesn't even seem to speak French that well. Maybe he won't even understand what's going on. But certainly, you know, in those kind of settings, I heard people talking in a certain way about North African immigrants or African immigrants. Uh, and those conversations probably would have been different in front of me if I were actually North African or, or, or black. Um, so those are, you know, those are certainly ways in which, you know, it was very visible the way my identity, uh, you know, shaped my research. I think even, you know, now there are, you know, when I'm doing research in California, I think, you know, my title, you know, the university I'm connected with, the resources I have as a result of that. And again, my identity, I think that opens some doors, it might create some skepticism among some groups uh, towards me, you know, I, I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say, but I think, you know, I have a lot of privileges. Uh, I think the, you know, the thing that I, I bring to this that is a little less visible. And I think, you know, the reality is that almost everyone is choosing topics for research based on personal experience and, and where they're coming from in the world. It's just that sometimes it's more visible. Uh, in my case, it's less visible, but, you know, I have a brother who lives with uh, kind of a range of, of disabilities uh, and who has, you know, experienced involuntary treatment, who's under guardianship. Um, there's a lot of mental illness in my family. Uh, and so all, all of those things, you know, certainly shape the way I approach this research. I think that it, uh, it makes me a little bit more humble about some of the perspectives people have, right? So, I would love to totally buy into the strong civil rights or disability rights narrative that no one should be forced to treatment into treatment ever. Uh, I think that's a good principle in concept. And I know from my own experience why I think that's not realistic. And then similarly, I would love to believe, uh, you know, that 
uh, keto mental illness. It's a, it's a brain disease and we have these biological treatments for it called medication and we should just make people treat them. You know, we should make people take them because that's really going to help everyone. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, mental illness comes from a really complex range of circumstances that's, you know, you know, not just genetics or biology uh, and that the treatments, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, sometimes it's not clear. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you have a great psychiatrist, sometimes you have a terrible psychiatrist. Uh, and so I think that range of experiences, I'd like to think it makes me a little bit more humble in terms of saying, you know, making absolute statements about what should be done. Definitely. And I think, you know, coming from academia and being able to look at the statistics sort of also gives you a, a macro scale sort of perspective, right? Yeah. Like in addition to the micro scale one. So I think uh, it's it's a very fresh perspective. And yeah, and I agree, you know, it, it really grounds you to sort of look at these like big statistics too. Uh, so yeah, I think that's about it from my end. So it was a pleasure talking to you today, Alex. So thank you so much again for taking out the time. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest in my work. It's always, you know, I felt very, I was, I was very happy to see that, you know, somebody from relatively far away was, you know, was, was curious about what I was doing. So I really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH podcast for further updates.